standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. I hope you're all doing all right and you're not too hoarse from all of the sky screaming. It's, uh, it's exhausting, isn't it? Anyway, welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, which I can't promise won't lead to a bit more yelling into the abyss, as I catch up with the excellent Dr. Jess Taylor to talk about her book, Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, because aren't we just? Jess's incredibly well-researched look at rape culture and how women internalise and explain away sexual violence committed against them is a brilliant, hard-hitting must-read. We chat about victim versus survivor, about how education and the media are letting us all down, victim blaming in general, and the tangle of reasons that leads to us blaming women for the sexual violence committed against them. That all sounds massively heavy, doesn't it? And the topic is undoubtedly a serious one, but the joy of Jess, and she really is a joy, is that she makes it a very easy listen. Hello, I am joined on the phone by the indefatigable Dr. Jess Taylor, feminist psychologist, founder and owner of Victim Focus, and author of Essential Read, Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, an exploration of the many reasons women are blamed for male violence committed against them. Jess, hello. Hiya, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure to talk to you. I've been trying to get you on the podcast forever, but you are a very busy woman who is, in fact, you know, in a car park right now between appointments to talk to me, so I'm very grateful. <laughs> Thanks for outing me. <laughs> I'm outing you. But, you know, you, you, took your, you took your headphones, so you were totally professional. It's cool. I'd like to start, actually, by asking you about the word victim. There's a tendency not to use the word victim and instead to use the word survivor to the point where victims of rape or domestic violence are even told they're not victims, they're survivors. And, you know, I I kind of get it, that taking back of power and people should absolutely use the label they want to. But survivor feels more abstract to me, like it removes the perpetrator from the equation and that plays into the idea that you can choose not to be a victim. So, yeah, those are my thoughts and I wondered what yours were. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? When I first started working in the criminal justice system, the language was victim. And that was because it was sort of to acknowledge that they were a victim of serious crime. You didn't use the language survivor when you worked in, you know, courts and policing and things like that. Mm -hmm. Then I went into working in rape centres and domestic abuse and the language was survivor. And I was like, oh, okay, and I had to, like, get used to that. And it was, you know, professionals would say survivor, the policies would say survivor. And I thought, oh, okay. And then sort of over a period of time then, I then went and worked in like human trafficking and sexual exploitation and the language went back to victim. So when I came to, you know, do my PhD and write the book, I was really interested in what, how did, how did women actually feel about those two labels? Mm-hmm. So from interviewing women and other research that's been done on exactly this topic, is like what language do women prefer? It's actually really mixed. So some women feel that if you call them a victim, it feels very static, like they'll always be a victim, that they're um, helpless and powerless and that they prefer survivor because it makes them feel empowered. Whereas other women hate the term survivor and they say that it makes them feel or sound like they've got over it, like they, that everything's okay now yeah. and they're not impacted by that anymore. So some women say, no, I, I hate the term survivor because it makes it sound like I'm all right and that I survived. And then there's also the connotation then that women who are not okay and are still impacted are just not survivors. Before I even started writing up the book, that and that's why it's in the book, that language sort of issue, 
because that is really important. The way that we frame women has an impact on the way they see themselves. So that's why you'll notice in my work and in my book, I say women subjected to male violence or women subjected to sexual violence because it means that I don't place victim or survivor on them. And it means that I always put the perpetrator back into the sentence, you know, that they were subjected to something. Because the other one that I reject is experienced. So someone will say, oh, um, she experienced rape. Like, well, she didn't, though, did she? It's not like a metaphor. Like, somebody did it to her. You can't just experience a rape on your own, can you? So that's why I chose something active. So, like, the phrase subjected to, because you are subjected to violence and oppression. You don't just experience it, do you? Exactly. Exactly that. Thank you. That is a, a very crystal answer. And, you know, I was I was sexually abused as a kid. And that language, I find, is really interesting around it because I wasn't I was a victim and now I have survived it so I think they're kind of interchangeable but it feels like another thing where society wants to decide what label to put on me yeah yeah I think so and I think um, survivor in some ways makes people more comfortable although as I said like for some women and men I imagine but the research that I read was done with women who had been sexually abused and there were some women that definitely took they they felt that they went from victim to survivor, but there were other women who felt that they were simultaneously victims and survivors. Yeah. Because yeah. they'll always be a victim of those serious crimes that were committed against them, but they now feel like they survived and worked through it. So they sort of, at the end of the day, the, the best way I've, you know, explained it when I'm lecturing and stuff like that is that some women like victim, some women like survivor, some women feel that they are both at the same time and some women hate them both. It's like, it's like, you know, so that's why I guess my choice was just to not use them. Brilliant. So tell us about why women are blamed for everything. It has been a long time in the research and writing, right? Yeah. When I wrote the book, I drew on sort of 10 years of practice experience and then sort of three or four years of doctoral research. Why women are blamed for everything. The reason that it's entitled that is because the more and more I wrote, the more chapters I added to the book, the more research that I read, I honestly felt like there was nothing that we haven't blamed women, you know, there was nothing that we haven't used against women to blame them for. There's everything in that book from, you know, your ethnicity, your religion, your background, your family, your body weight, what you look like, your sexual history. There's just everything that can be used against you and that's why I just felt you know what I just feel like women could be blamed for everything about themselves mm-hmm. um, to excuse male violence in the book I cover some of the psychological and sociological theories of why we might do that and up to this point there has never been an integrated theory of victim blaming there's always been this like these like singular explanations where you know some people would say oh it it's rape myths that cause victim blaming or it is belief in a just world that causes victim blaming it is misogyny that causes victim blaming but the more i read and the more i you know interviewed women it seemed to me that it was all of all of the theories actually it did i didn't find any evidence that there was one core cause of victim blaming i don't think there is so in terms of you know why we do it we do it because we are fed myths and stereotypes about sexual violence and about perpetrators and about victims our whole lives even children having relationships and sex education are being fed these myths 
by adults and professionals who think that they understand this um, and then they're passing it on to children even at university level so I lecture at undergrad masters and and PhD and even those students hold really strong rape myth acceptance and you sort of have to challenge their belief systems around you know oh well if she doesn't have injuries then it can't have really been a real rape and if if she didn't say no and fight off then you know it's not really a rape is it and if they were both drunk it can't possibly be a rape and those sorts of things that you have to sort of challenge with even you know even university students but just the myths on their own the research has shown that doesn't cause victim blaming so if you think about it you could be misinformed couldn't you but then you could support a woman who has been raped and that wouldn't mean that you would then blame her for it just because you're misinformed right those two things are yeah those two things are slightly different so i could for example i don't know believe that all rape happens at night and in an unfamiliar location by a stranger and then i don't know my friends could say oh my boyfriend raped me that doesn't mean that i'm going to use that knowledge to then blame her i could still completely accept that and and support her so i don't think that rape myths and the stereotypes are the cause of victim blaming but they are feeding into it for sure yeah and then the other major theory that's been used is belief in a just world which is this really interesting cognitive theory from the 70s that argues that generally people believe that you get what you deserve in life Mm. and good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and therefore if a woman is raped or abused or exploited she must have done something to bring it on she must have done something to deserve it and we all hold these beliefs to some extent there are like psychometric measures that like that can measure how sort of strongly we believe in a just world what's interesting about that is that people who have quite a strong belief in a just world when they hear about something really bad that's happened to somebody and that doesn't just mean rape it could be i don't know a car accident or somebody becomes very ill or something like that they have a tendency to look for what that person did wrong because it balances out their sense of justice which is why it's called belief in a just world so you know it if you search for something that that person did wrong and then blame them for it it makes you feel safer yeah um so that's definitely important and it's very important considering that we use juries and you know volunteer magistrates in courts and things and they're going to be holding those views as well you know so that's important there's also been you know feminist arguments for decades that victim blaming is based on misogyny and it's not that i reject that because i absolutely you know accept that there is an incredible amount of woman hating and sexism in victim blaming of course there is But I don't think it's the sole explanation for victim blaming because victim blaming occurs in lots of different crimes that don't use this level of misogyny to enable us to blame victims. Like, even if, like you said, I'm sat in a car park right now, if I, I don't know, leave my iPad or my phone on the chair and run to my next appointment and then my car gets smashed up for what somebody wanted, the first thing people are going to say is, what was on the dash? Did you leave anything in in plain sight? You know, you should have covered your valuables. You should have taken that with you. You shouldn't have done that. We have a tendency to kick in really quickly with victim blaming, regardless of the crime. We do it even in femicide. We do it when women and children have been killed by men, like where it's partners or dad or male family member. And even when presented with the deaths of humans, we'll still be like, well, you know, what did they do? It's outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. There are some other really interesting theories that I talk about in the book, like individualism. So society, especially white Western society, is very individualistic. So we 
sort of position all issues within the individual. And that means that even if something, you know, that's socially condoned and horrific happens, we tend to look into the individual as in like, why didn't you keep yourself safe? You're responsible for your own behavior Mm -hmm. type response. And that is definitely playing out in violence against women and girls really heavily at the moment because we have a lot of prevention campaigns that are just aimed at women and girls keeping themselves more and more safe and what we mean by keeping ourselves safe is basically like do less and less and less things yeah i mean it's like limiting freedom for this ridiculous veil of safety or control so that other people feel better like well i wouldn't have done that oh she did no I, i would definitely not have done that and like feel like they have a little bit of control over not getting raped when that is is not the case at all. No, I know. And you can understand why, though, can't you? Because yeah, totally. You, you want to convince yourself that wouldn't happen to you. So you tell yourself you would never make the same mistakes as that woman or girl. Or, the, or if it's children, you say, well, I'm, that would never happen to my children because I keep my children safe. It's a way that we defend ourselves by attacking others, really, mm-hmm. is, is what this is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Twitter, but on a larger scale. <laughs> it's so funny you said that because as those words came out of my mouth I was like it's a lot like Twitter actually <laughs> and then you said it <laughs> it is a huge book and I don't mean that in terms of the number of pages I mean in what it is putting out there what you're putting out there because despite all the evidence that we're socializing to believing that women are pretty much always to blame for any male violence that is committed against them it is not a popular theory is it no not particularly it's <laughs> I've not I can't really even begin to express how much abuse I've had for this book and from so many different like groups and, and people. The most obvious groups of people that hate the book, I, I have had abuse from them and I knew it was coming. But the sort of anger and, I don't know, sort of discomfort that I've had from other groups that I didn't expect, it, it's just, I, honestly, I'm getting it from all angles at the moment. And it's so interesting because we tell ourselves, don't we, that we that we want to be progressive and we want to deal with this, these issues. Mm-hmm. We want critical thinkers. We want to solve these social issues. And then we try and do it and people are fuming. Yeah. That bit for me, I think, is that, I, that, that actually, I guess it makes me a bit sad because I think, oh, right, no, the world is not ready to uh, address male violence actually we we talk a good game but then if any of it is confronted in any way then people get angry so what i think is really interesting on this front is that you initially self-published because you wanted the book out there but it has now been picked up by little brown which is fucking great were you surprised <laughs> I mean, yeah because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um lots of people know i never sought publishers because i didn't I, I just I don't know I just didn't really want them I didn't think I would need them or whatever I wrote the book because I felt it needed to be written and I wanted there to be this this sort of resource out there where all of the research and theories and my evidence base around the victim of women was all in one place that was that was really what I wanted to do obviously I was sharing it and saying to people oh you know this is the link to my book and you can buy my book on this day this is all self-published I remember thinking, oh, if I sell like a hundred, I'll be so happy. Like, you know, <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, I bet my friends will buy some, like maybe, <laughs> and then I, you know, and then I thought, oh, that'll be nice. Um, and then it sold, I think the figures for the first eight weeks or six weeks of 10,600. Amazing. And yes. I was, 
I was absolutely gobsmacked. But also, because I have no knowledge of, like, publishing, I didn't realise how much that was, right? So I, I don't know why I got this in my head. But, like, so publishers were talking to me saying that is a, a lot of books yeah, in, like, is. you know, two months. And I was like, is it? Is it really? Because I, I assumed that a lot of books in terms of like traditionally published books would be like a million in the first month. Oh, God, no. Yeah, no. So I had no idea the scale of, of what was classed as like a successful book. I, I just because I've got no knowledge of it. So then when publishers started showing interest in the book, I was quite, I don't know, I was a bit sort of confused because I didn't really, <laughs> like, I didn't really know why. And I was really lucky that I got, you know, the Blair partnership, who are my agents, they sort of picked me up and spoke to me and talked to me about all my future projects and what I wanted to achieve and stuff. And then they were saying, right, we want, we, we'll represent you and we'll sort all of this out. And even then, I was, I was a bit like, I don't even know what an agent is, really. I remember talking to them and <laughs> like they were sort of like, they were talking to me as if I knew what they did. And then I got all the way to the end of like this conversation with them. I was like, what is it you do then? <laughs> like, the, like <laughs> so yeah, it's been a huge learning curve actually. But it's been, yeah, it's been a, it's been a bit of a shock. Um, and then I signed a multi-book deal with Little Brown. That's which amazing. Means that I've got Congratulations. Another, oh, thank you. So I've got another, I've got another book that is coming out. So, I've got to now uh, get my head down and write, uh, write another book that's that'll be that's due out. But yeah, it's really exciting. I've got like so many ideas, and now I feel like the world's my oyster now because I've got these people that know what they're doing, and I could just like ring them and be like, "Oi, <laughs> how'd you do this?" <laughs> oh, I couldn't be more chuffed for you. We were talking as you were parking up about the fact, like coming from working class backgrounds, that magic of having something that you have written in your hands is just incredible. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like we were talking about, I think that's why I've got no, um, what's the word, like, shame around the fact that it was self-published. I had quite a lot of people, like, mocking me, being like, oh, you self-published a book. And I was like, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> like, I had no idea that that was supposed to be something that, was, I don't know, just wasn't as good or for some reason. For me, it's exactly what you just said. It was that I'd written this thing and then it had a book cover and it was made into a book. Yeah. And then I was like holding it. I was like, oh, it's a book. It's got my name <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and then, you know, that was enough for me. I just thought that it was awesome and that it was a book and that I'd written it and that other people could read it. Uh, and that it was helping women because I was getting so many messages and emails and phone calls from women and girls, like women reading it to their daughters, women reading it in in domestic abuse refuges and rape centers and like just so many women contacting me saying that you know it's really shifted the way that they understand like you know their their self-blame and the way that they were victim blamed by their families or the police and stuff like that and that that's that was what it was for so you just don't think when you grow up dead poor like I did um that you will get I guess these types of opportunities because in reality you don't like it's that's the truth a lot of us don't. And that's something that I've written about before is that I actually grew up surrounded by, honestly, some of the most intelligent, talented kids. Mm -hmm. We had no opportunities. We had no resources. We had no one, we had no role models. There's so much talent and so much skill that's almost like glossed over because of deprivation, poverty and classism, I think. Yeah, definitely. Those kids way smarter than me, like way smarter, trust me. <laughs> uh, you know, well, <laughs> like, 
you don't really grow up with any particular like sort of big ambition necessarily because you haven't ever seen it you haven't you've never seen anybody else around you actually get anywhere I remember when I was a kid I did say that I wanted to grow I've got I've still got the piece of paper that I wrote it on I was I think I was 11 or 12 and I wrote a letter to myself and it said not to be opened until you are 18 and then inside it had like a life plan and I've still got it it says the car you will drive the house you will live in and it says the job you will do. And then I've like written to myself the things that I'm supposed to be doing by by 18, apparently. I'm, very, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly very what ambitious. I thought I was doing. <laughs> yeah. Although in the letter, I did think that houses were about £500. So I was, um, I'd written to myself that like, I could have a house that was worth probably about £1,000 and I would be happy with that. Not 100% sure where I got that from. Um, <laughs> and I remember like writing the make and models of the cars that I'd seen driving around that I hoped one day that I could have. And it was they were just like Fiat Punto or Ford Fiesta or something that I like really really wanted. And then underneath in jobs, my list of jobs right was psychologist, social worker, author, prime minister. Those were my jobs. Oh my 18. god, there's only one left. Mate, you get my vote. You totally if we're ever allowed to vote for a prime minister again, I am totally voting for you. Um let's let's go back to the book. Because like I said, the book is vast in the areas it covers, because you've had to. Uh, but there's two that I'd like to touch on in particular, and that is education and the media. So let's start with schools. I was at secondary school, a Catholic school in the late 80s, early 90s, and I vividly remember all the girls being kept behind after one assembly and being told that skirts had to be on or below the knee or we were sluts. And that was the word that was used. This shit is starting really early, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is actually. And also that's continuing. I I speak, you know, I've spoken to sort of 17-year-old girls, 18-year-old women now where they'll say, oh, a few years ago in high school, they were still doing that to me. People will try and tell you that this stuff doesn't happen anymore. So you might, so you could tell that story now, and people say, "Yeah, well, you know, that was years ago. That's not that's not happening to girls now." Mm-hmm. You're like, yes, it is. Like, there's research by the NSPCC and Bernardo's as well, where they interviewed girls in some in um, high schools who were told things like that they had to wear shorts under their skirts because boys kept lifting their skirts up at school, and they were sort of saying to them, "Well, you know." If you don't want that sort of attention, you should wear cycling shorts under your skirts. Why is that a solution? You've got boys lifting their skirts up at school and pulling their underwear down as like a joke to objectify them and to humiliate them. And the teacher's response is to wear shorts. Is that a joke? But we live in a world where school uniform is seen as sexy. You oh, know? I know. Oh, it's horrific. See, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Is that we've got porn. That it's not it's not only sexualized school uniform because it has done that and I completely agree but it's also I think sexualized school so there's loads of porn set in school there's porn where you know teachers are sexually abusing their students and that's apparently really sexy and I spoke about this a couple of years ago I made a YouTube video about the way that the media reports on teachers who sexually abuse children and the language that's used is honestly disgusting it's like um affair so it's like student had an affair with their teacher and they're talking like a 13 year old kid and they say things like student and teacher romance or lustful affair and i like i i did it on a youtube video and you can it's still up and you can sort of 
watch me as I go through these headlines and I'm like analyzing them as I go through and they're just horrendous and, you know, some of them you can see on the video I'm like visibly shocked I'm like oh what is this one so I found a, a particular newspaper and they had ranked female sex offenders by their hair color so teachers who had uh, so female teachers who'd sexually abused boys and they had ranked them by their hair color and it said brunette teachers redhead teachers blonde teachers finally the stats we've all been waiting for to be honest with you jess <laughs> yeah that's what we needed <laughs> fucking hell <laughs> the language used around teaching kids about sex and relationships um one sre like loads of teachers something like three percent of teachers feel comfortable and the rest of them don't want to teach it at all but i know you go into yeah. schools and you talk to teachers didn't you go into a school where they said they would accept that they would use the word penis, but they refused but not vagina. to use vagina because it was too rude? Yeah. Yes. So I was teaching like a training course for teachers that wanted to become essentially the relationships and sex ed sort of lead for their school. And I had about 30 or 40 teachers that were with me for several days. And on the first day, the head from one of the schools within that group that were that I was teaching came up to me at the front of the, the classroom and was like, um, I'm just like, you know, we had a meeting last night and um, spoken to my colleagues and they do feel comfortable saying penis, but um, we've made a decision and we won't be saying uh, vagina. And I, and I just sort of looked at her and was like, you what? what? <laughs> I was like, what? how are you going to... How are you going to deliver sex education if you won't talk about vagina? Just, just going to point and go, down there, girls. I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah, what's yeah. the solution? The solution is <laughs> gonna have, like, fucking say it. Flashcards or something. <laughs> <laughs> I just sort of said to her, okay, well, tough. So <laughs> you, like, like, I'm sorry, but that's not going to work. You're not... And like, and then I had to do like this whole section with them about what what their discomfort was. Like, why is vagina so scary and rude? And oh god, can't possibly say that. But they were all right with penis. I was like, that's misogyny. Like, think about it. You've like made female bodies so taboo that you won't even say the word. How are you going to teach sex education to kids? Oh god, it's just mind it's blowing. It's horrible. Like, I've, yeah. Because obviously this this isn't just affecting girls, it affects boys and their attitudes as they grow up to, to be men and their attitudes to women. Like, it's... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I've got my head in my hands. It's horrible. <laughs> Let's move on to the media. And, I mean, I quite regularly have to stop myself screaming at the television, so I can only imagine your house is sort of one constant roar, just in, like, soaps, crime shows, all of the ways that violence committed against women and particularly sexual violence committed against women is portrayed on telly yeah well actually um you will you may be surprised to know or maybe not surprised to know that i don't watch the tv i think it's, um, it probably makes sense <laughs> yeah i so i stopped watching it like eight years ago because i just just for the exact reason like the i just couldn't deal with it and then i remember um I was in a hotel probably about three or four years ago um, and I was like working somewhere. It was late at night and I was just, sometimes you, I, like some people listening to this will know exactly what I mean, but, and you might as well, you know, when you're working away on your own, you're just in like the millionth hotel and you just start getting a bit, you're just like, oh, I'm just so lonely. And I put, I put the TV on for like a, a few minutes and it was the news. It was like, I don't know, 11 o'clock or midnight and it was the news. I'd only had it on for like 30 seconds and I, I listened to this news report that said, 
that children in, I think it was Calais or somewhere, it was around the refugee crisis at the time, were selling themselves and prostituting themselves for food and that they're, t- that they're putting themselves at risk. And I was like, nope! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those canny business people, the children. I know, yeah. I was so angry. I put like formal complaints into the TV channel and everything. I was just like, this, I, just, I remember just lying in the bed in silence thinking, this is why you don't watch TV. Yeah, and just the headlines in mainstream media. I mean, you could probably find an example every single day. But the most recent outrageous one I saw, and I'm pretty sure you tweeted about it too, was the Irish Times, and I quote, troubled teenage girl at risk of sexual exploitation placed in secure care. There, and there was a lot to unpick in the story it ran about this 15-year-old child and how she's exchanging unprotected sex for drugs and alcohol with not one line about the men committing the crimes against her. Just nothing. It, to be honest with you, those examples are fairly common, aren't they? But mm-hmm. that one was outstandingly bad, actually. Mm-hmm. The language in it positioned her as the criminal, I think. I don't think it was just bad language. I think, like you know, it wasn't just a bit careless. It was actually positioning her as an absolute nuisance and that, the sexual violence and the trafficking and and the exploitation of her was just completely irrelevant because her behaviours were just so bad she needed locking up. Again, you know, perpetrators got a free ride. It it was just... Do you know what? I was actually talking to Jamie about this last night. It feels like we've not moved in 10 years. I I was reading headlines and stories like that in 2010 and everyone was going, oh, this is awful, you know, we need to stop writing about children like that. And then we've over the last few years, when I teach on this subject, you'll get people saying, oh, we don't do things like that anymore, that stops, like, you know, people have learned, we don't talk about children like that. And I'm like, yes, we do. Like, what, what are we getting out of telling each other that we've made so much progress in the way we report these cases? Because we haven't, and we're all just bullshitting each other at this point, and we're just sort of telling each other that we've made a load of progress and that everything is different. And I I actually several times have been approached by sort of TV channels or by producers or like groups of journalists that have asked for training where they said, will you come in and sort of spend some time with us around language and exploitation and violence against women so we can just get the reporting right. And what's so interesting is that every single time that's happened, the budgets have been denied by different channels and companies. Oh, so they're really serious about it? Yes, some some of them are, yeah. Some some groups are really serious about it. They want to change it. And then they've asked for, you know, training, they've asked for resources, and then they've been told either, no, like, you're just not doing it. And in some cases, they've been told, like, we're not paying for that that type of training for you. And it's amazing because what I've happened I get a lot there's a lot of journalists that follow my stuff and then read the book and and a lot of them have contacted me to say this has really made me like rethink the way that I talk about things and and Mm -hmm. write about things so they're sort of doing their own self-development in some places actually yeah and I would also say to any listeners that if you if you see it particularly online and you call it out it will get changed I've seen like stuff from the BBC and people go this is outrageous why the fuck are you describing this man as a loving husband when he's killed his wife and the BBC will change it so we do have to call it out there is a responsibility there or at least something that we can do to keep ramming this message home that it's not okay it's it's dangerous to keep using this language yeah, definitely. The thing is, as well, we know from the research that this type of reporting, headlines and, um, you know, sort of like television news reporting, it, it has an impact on 
women who've been subjected to that type of violence as well because they're listening to these narratives and then they're taking them in and then they're sort of trying to apply them to their own experiences and their eyes are thinking oh that's what happened to me or they're thinking oh well I hope that never happens to me or you know they're sort of like having these I guess these messages fed to them that women are stupid women are naive women ask for it women are promiscuous and I think it's also serving to increase internalized misogyny as well um that women are not only using against themselves but they're all they're then using against other women so you know my research and other people's research has found that women victim blame other women to the same sort of levels and prevalence as men victim blame women that's actually really important because there is a myth that men will victim blame women much more than women would victim blame other women and that's not true no, it's it's not true at all. I spoke to a lawyer off the record. She was a defender in rape trials and she said her ideal jury will be mainly women because that's when he's most likely to get off. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I think I think I've read some research that backs that up actually. So, yeah, she's yeah, I imagine she's probably right actually. There's just so much misogyny, internalized misogyny and then judgment between ourselves as women. Mm-hmm. And that what what I wish that people would understand is that that's the point of patriarchal control. That's the point of sexism and misogyny. It's because divided, we are much less powerful. So if you can divide and conquer and convince women that they're competing with each other and that other women hate them and, you know, that other women are the problem, then the patriarchy can continue, can't it? Because women are too busy tearing strips off each other. Yeah, exactly that. And we've all been fed this for so long, like since day one of our lives. And a lot of it is that subconscious internal misogyny. How do we start to reprogram and fight it? I think some of it has to be this like constant internal mental challenge to Mm -hmm. yourself. Yeah. So I'll tell you, I guess, what I know about what I did, because in terms of advising others, I guess it could be different for everyone. But one of the things that I did very, very early on, I would say sort of early 20s, was I made an active decision to never use a female slur ever again. And no matter how angry I was, no matter whether, like, I won't even allow myself to slip up. I will forcibly stop myself from speaking. I will never, ever use it. I don't even allow myself to think it. That was quite hard when I was in my early 20s because some um, female slurs are very accepted. People use them just like, just like they're nothing. Yeah. I think I probably completely got it under control by, I would say, about within a couple of years. I would never, ever go there. And then as I sort of developed that level of thinking, the next thing that came, which was probably mid-20s, was that I will never, ever engage in discussion about a woman's appearance or about her body weight or, like, honestly, nothing. I, I, don't, I do not care what she has done to me or, like, anything. I, I'm not going there. I'm not going in about appearance or about her life, about her ch- like children or, or, you know, about a relationship, nothing. I'm not going there and I'm never going to do it. It's forced me to focus on people's ideas and their actions rather mm. than getting into misogyny. I often also question whether my reactions to things are based in misogyny as well. Like sometimes I might say something or think something. I think, do I think that though? Because I've been sort of, socialized to believe that about women when I was much younger probably under 20 I remember thinking that women shouldn't do certain jobs or whatever like when I was much younger yeah. and then as I as, as I got older I then had to like challenge that within myself I was like why do I think that why can't women do that job like what is it that I believe that means that I think that 
all of us could be doing this. I think we could all be challenging some of it. And it does make a difference. I think it's helped me. It means that, I, like I just said, it, it forces me to focus on, let's say, for example, if there's a woman who disagrees with me or who is just being vile and they're like sort of saying horrible things, I will deliberately focus on the substance of the argument and not get pulled into personal bullshit. Yeah. And it's interesting how people don't know what to do when you do that. They get they get angrier and angrier actually because you're not engaging in it, which is really interesting. It's like it's like because we're expected to almost, and then when you don't do it, people are a bit thrown. Well, you know, everyone loves a cat fight. Yeah, well, <laughs> I know. I've had a lot of it recently. That's just misogynistic abuse from other women, and you just think, mm, okay, I wouldn't want to be you because if you hold those views about women, I hate to think what you think about yourself. And that's because I know that when I was much younger, I would have said those things or held those views myself. So it's putting the work in, really, isn't it? We are all a work in progress. And it's, it's, I think even, like you say, if you go, I'm not going to use certain words, every time you go to use that word, you're going to have to think about why you've, you've got to that place. Yeah, like, why did you go yeah. to it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, Jess, you mentioned you're working on another book. Can you tell us anything about it? <laughs> that was naughty. Um... <laughs> So the title's been agreed, the content's been agreed. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm... I, ooh, I don't know. So I, what I, I'll maybe be able to say some things, but not others. So I know that it's going to be um, contentious. It's probably it's going to be contentious. It's based on women's oppression. It's going to be sort of written in the exact same style. It's going to be sort of very accessible because you know how I feel about like accessible writing. Um, yeah, I cool. hate that things are made wordy and inaccessible. It's, again, written for the same audience in that it, anybody can pick it up and just learn loads and it's all, like, evidence-based and it's going to be on a different topic um, that's related to women's oppression. But, yeah, I'm, I am excited about it. But um, <laughs> I spoke to my publisher about it yesterday and he was like, this one is going to be big and it's going to be, like, it's going to cause a load of shit. I was like, oh, yay. Hooray. <laughs> I am, I'm excited already. So where can people yeah. find out more about you and your work? victimfocus.org.uk is where my like the home of victim focus which is my um consultancy company that works all over the world and does research and evaluations and builds resources and just like speaking and training and stuff like that to try and uh, really break down the way that we victim blame and you know that includes in policing and government and social care and stuff like that and then victimfocus-resources.com is the website where all of our books and resources flashcards and stuff for professionals is like training courses that you can take online so i set up the victim focus academy which is where you can take courses that are written and presented by me online which are made as affordable as possible and also if if i can there is a free course on there for anybody who's been subjected to sexual violence oh, and it's sort of yeah, it's, it's been taken by like 50,000 people wow. since last summer. Wow. Yeah, and it's completely free. Just go on. It's anonymous. We don't want your details. You don't have to log in or anything. You can access it. It's seven modules, and you can just work through your own feelings about the sexual violence you were subjected to. So that's at victimfocus.org.uk, but you can also get it on the store, and you'll notice when you put it in your basket, it's just free. 
so there's that and then i have a new website being launched which will be drjessicataylor.com and it's just like so people can find out where i am or what i'm up to and the books that are coming out and interviews i've done because i sort of feel quite strongly that victim focus has grown so much since i set it up that it needs to be its own brand that doesn't involve me all the time because some things that i do aren't necessarily going to be through my company does that make sense yeah that makes perfect sense yeah so and victim focus has grown so huge the plan is we want to translate all of our resources and our written work and all of our free stuff into the top 10 most um, spoken languages in the world to make everything as accessible as possible to women. And then we want to expand the training and messages and blogs and things into as many different countries and languages as possible so that we can try and, you know, break down victim blaming of women on a global scale. Um, Victim Focus grew literally from just like a concept in my head in 2016 and I set it up properly at the beginning of 2017 and it's sort of quadrupled in size in sort of two or three years. It's so incredible. I'm I'm very excited for when you decide to sort of rate things by hair colour though. That's what I'm holding out for. Um, That's going to be great. Yeah, I don't think I'll, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't think I'll ever get to that level of skill or competency i mean it is it's um i'll leave that to that particular (laughs) newspaper fucking hell go on give jamie's brilliant website of feminist goodies a plug as well oh i know honestly i love watching her create those things she just she has like the ipad pro and she like draws them all so she creates ethical recycled feminist stationery oh it's beautiful as well it's so beautiful Oh, she she will be so happy. And she also has her Radical Feminist Journal coming out next month. She's designed this really, really creative, cool journal that asks you reflective questions and tasks and doodles and stuff about your own feminism and why you came to those views and what you think about particular things going on in the world from a feminist perspective. That comes out next month. So she's at thefeministationerycompany.com. It's just so cool. Like, or is it .co.uk? The Feminist Station Company.co.uk. Whatever you do, if you put it in Google, it comes straight up anyway. <laughs> She's got like bookmarks, pens, journals, diaries, stickers, badges. It's honestly, she's, she's so talented. I just love watching her do her artwork. It's it's wicked. The feedback and like people have really loved the stuff. And I think that she's just recently had some interest from this like big business that, it basically is impressed with her because all of her stuff is sourced ethically and everything is recycled. And I think that's just part of who she is, is that she's, you know, she's a radical feminist, but she's like really into making sure that she isn't, I don't know, sort of making a negative impact in terms of resources that she's using and stuff at the same time. Yeah, if you're in the market for a new notebook, it's definitely the place to go. Jess, <laughs> Why Women Are Blamed For Everything, Exploring the Culture of Victim Blaming is out now. And just thank you so, so much for pulling into that car park and having a chat with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was just like really interesting conversation. So thanks. Standard issue for all women.